I can honestly say all my clients are making more money. I can honestly say that the people that I coach in leadership improve their leadership skills. And and I'm passionate about helping people become better leaders, which starts with you. The hardest person to lead is yourself. So I really believe that you have to start looking at whether you're leading yourself or you're leading a team of people, you really need to look at who you're being in life. Welcome to Making Change With Your Money a podcast that highlights the stories and strategies of women who experienced a big life transition and overcame challenges as they redefined financial success for themselves. Now here's your host, certified financial planner, Laura Rotter. I am so excited to have as my guest today, Claire Brown Kohler. Claire is a business coach, public speaker, and leadership trainer. As the owner of We Empower Leaders, she focuses on guiding leaders and business owners to address themselves and their teams with empathy, insight, passion, and an inspired vision for the future. Her clients are business owners, perhaps just like you, looking to take their business to the next level or struggling with challenges and changes. So welcome, Claire, to the Making Change With Your Money podcast. Thank you. I'm very, very pleased and flattered to be here. You have I I lit, went through your roster of former guests, and I had to have a little conversation with myself about imposter syndrome because you've had a spectacular lineup, and I, I listened to several of them and learned a lot and was very inspired. So thank you so much. I mean, excellent company. So then you'll be aware of the question I always start with, which is, what was money like in your family, Claire, growing up? I'm really glad I thought about this question because I don't know that I, I have thought about it some. Money was mysterious. It was not discussed. <laughs> In fact, when I applied for college, my father wanted me to apply for financial aid, but refused to put his income down on the financial statements. And I'm I'm completely perplexed by this. I just don't get it. Dad, how do you think they're going to give us money if they don't if you're not going to tell them how much money you make and we were quite comfortable and I will date myself here to say that my college which was you know almost an Ivy League college was $4000 a year so you know expenses that were very different back then and he just refused he said I'm not going to do it and I said well then I can't apply for financial aid and that you know and then I started thinking about high school and the jobs that I had through high school and college that my sisters, I don't remember them really working through high school or college. Well, I was the only one that went to college, but no, my, my younger sister went, I mean, I, I uh, babysat, I literally crocheted shawls, which I sold, you know, I, I worked at a Hardee's in a hideous orange polyester uniform. And then in college, I I took care of a kid that had broken his leg, and I did I did a bunch of different things, and I but I don't remember having a conversation with my parents about why I did that and why my sisters didn't. So it was never talked about, and transparently, money's not been money flows to me, and I need to be more attentive, and I'm not, but it just keeps coming. So. It's just one of those mysteries. It's continued to be a mystery. It's a beautiful thing, though, the idea. I love the word of, I think you used the word flow, that money 
close to you? I'm curious, Claire. So you said you have sisters. You have several sisters, I guess. How how many are you? Two. Two sisters. So there's three girls all together in your family? Yes, which my father swore made him very happy. Interesting. So you you did or didn't believe him? <laughs> well, in retrospect, I think he treated me like the son because he was always pushing me and had high expectations of me, more so than my sisters. So in retrospect, I think I was the surrogate son, which was fine with me. And you're the oldest in the birth order? Yes. Interesting. So could you let us know in what way did you feel like you were the surrogate son? What were the expectations? Were they academic? Were they professional? They were a combination of both. I think he just expected that I would go to college and... There was he was very supportive. He would always say to us, "You can do whatever you put your mind to." My my big thing to him was, "All right, Dad, what about putting toothpaste back in a toothpaste tube?" But oh my God, you were a pain. But I've actually (laughs) done that. If you there's a certain way that if you if you manipulate the toothpaste tube, you can actually suck it back in. So I thought, okay, Dad, I proved to you right on that one. So he was just always very supportive, but. I graduated from college and my first job was selling popcorn in a movie theater to his great distress. At first, I thought I was going to move to Philadelphia and become a postman, postwoman. I had no idea. My college had zero career counseling. I was an anthropology major. And yeah, I see the world as one big place. We are, you know, we are unified. And so... I got there and I have a I have a whole story about what happened, but I ended up owning the movie theater. And so then he was his heart, his Republican corporate heart burst with pride over the fact. And he was actually an early investor for us. We repaid his investment, but he he was an early investor in the company and and was so proud of what we accomplished. So. I benefited from his positive. And I, I've I've interviewed people to find out before we're seven years old, we absorb what we're told like little sponges. We're really, most of us, I've met one or two exceptions, do not have the ability to discern whether that is what we want to believe or not. And until you question it, that becomes our internal operating system. And I was very lucky that he instilled a very positive operating system in me. So in high school, a friend of mine said, Claire, I love your yesness of life. And so I've just always been that way, although my sisters are not. So I don't know. I had an astrologer who said I was a cat raised among dogs. So um, I took it to heart in a way that they didn't. What role did your mother play since you haven't mentioned her? My mother was a bridge player who went to play bridge in the morning, came home in the afternoon, made dinner and did her own thing. And I love my mother, but she was not, I I just don't really remember her being there very much growing up. She was completely devoted to my father. Her world revolved around bridge and my father. Interesting. So your father almost had more of a hands-on, certainly emotional caregiving role more than your mother did? Yes, over the dinner table. We had, we, we got lectures over the dinner table. So, and instructions over the dinner table. So that was the main family interaction. And were either of them college graduates or were you? My father was, 
ironically, he went to Brown and his name was Brown. My maiden name is Brown. My mother went to Catherine Gibbs Secretarial School and remembered shorthand for the rest of her life, actually. I think it's a great skill, probably. (laughs) (laughs) I I wish I had it. And did you go away to college or were you were you living at home when you went to? No, I went away. So I vowed that I wouldn't go to a women's college. And then I went to a women's college, which doesn't exist anymore. It's complicated. It was Kirkland College, which was founded by Hamilton College. And after 12 years or seven, eight years, I think it was, they decided to just go co-ed and merge everything. So I am one of 1,200 Kirkland graduates. My name is enshrined in a wall in the Hamilton College, on the Hamilton campus. So I just had a conversation with the only alumni I've really kept in touch with. And she and I said, I, you know, I'm still resentful. And she said, get over it, Claire. Hamilton is a great school. They're doing great things. Get over your resentment. So I said, you know what? All right, I'm over it. And was Hamilton was Kirkland similar to Hamilton? Because it is sort of oh, non-alternative, no. if you will, in terms of Hamilton was very strict. They had fraternities, they had required grades, they had exams. Kirkland had no required courses. You could make up your own major. We had no grades. We had evaluations. Our student government was half students, half teachers, and the student government made critical decisions. I was on a committee called Kirkland as a College for Women. It was started during the education revolution in the late 60s. So we, I wore a button that said, Uppity Women Unite. we freaked those men out (laughs) so i get the sense claire that you had an entrepreneurial outside of the box personality from the get-go right as you described challenging your dad that you could put toothpaste back in (laughs) the tube so how did that affect your choices and you said we started you know bought a movie theater. Who was we? What was your path? Well, one of my core principles is intentional relationships. So as I was working in the movie theater, I owe it all to Harold and Maude, classic. And I was working in the movie theater. My manager at the time said, you have to go see Harold and Maude. So I went to see it. I saw it twice. The usher recognized me from the other movie theater. He and I became friends and he introduced me to a man that I dated for a brief period of time. Turns out he was really gay, but we I was the, the last woman that he dated, but we became friends and he started a business and he was renting the Tower Theater in Philadelphia and up for Darby to rent for movies. And started a company. And I said, I'm going to be part of the company. And I love him dearly, but he's very much a chauvinist pig. And he said, no. And so he gave me a test. I had to research and find our very first printer because we had printed program guides because this was before the internet. And so I, I was the number two in the company for 33 years and he was number one. So 33 years, we two movie theaters seven video stores, 29 different film festivals, 10 of the international Philadelphia International Gay and Lesbian Film Festival, 29, 19 of those, and 10 Philadelphia film festivals. We started a film distribution line. We had a division in the UK. We had a store in New York City. And it was quite 
an amazing, amazing time. I was tremendously blessed. We got up to 250 employees and $16 million in revenue. And it was a an amazing experience that I am so glad to have gone through. This is feels like a big ask, but could you sort of summarize for our listeners what you feel you came away from that experience with? I mean, it sounds, as you said, like, especially you, you started pretty much out of college, correct? Well, I had a, a series of jobs. We started the company when I was 28 or 29. Oh, I usually say I started very young when I say we were together for 33 years, but <laughs> I, the secret is out. What I walked away with was the power of of working as a team is one thing. I disagreed with a lot of my business partner's leadership style, but one thing that I have tremendous admiration for is that he created a management team that was devoid primarily of politics. There were it was a little bit rotating, but the final 20 years there was a core, you know, four or five of us. We were in and out of each other's offices. We supported each other. We collaborated. We we really worked as a beautiful team. He, if you know EOS, he was the visionary and I was the integrator. And But he just, he made sure that when we made a decision, we made it as a team for the most part. Occasionally he would decide something and we would go with it. Well, there were a couple of major projects he decided we were going to do and then we all kind of went along. But I would say that was one of the key things and the power of your people. I was, you know, the one that as the COO, I oversaw all the people and we had phenomenal people. In fact, I was just at a networking event last week and I saw one of the managers of my store in Chestnut Hill, who I have not seen in 12 years. And I said, Chris, and he said, Claire, and it was awesome. And I think we've done a couple of reunions, staff reunions and (laughs) And they have said, you know, I've never worked anywhere as great as TLA and I still miss it. And and he said, you know, a few of us have been talking about a reunion. And I said, I'm in. So I think the people, the collaboration and and the power of strategic planning, because one of the things that Ray excelled at was every year until the last year or two when we were really struggling with changing technology was the ability to really say this is my vision for the upcoming year. This is what we're going to do. Got all of us in alignment. And then we we figured out how we were going to make that vision happen. Uh, just the, the one that always sticks in my head in terms of making changes, right, for technology was, you know, we started in movie theaters and then we saw movie theaters evolve and change into video stores. And I'm actually having dinner tonight with the banker who financed our video stores. He 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 had his own video store, two miles from where I live, and he said, "You guys have to get into the video business, and our bank will finance you." So we shifted from movie theaters to video stores, and then we saw that it was all going to go online. Well, first we had to make the transition from VHS to DVD. We, there was that brief stint of labor, laser disc. Well, even in the beginning, you had to decide between Beta and VHS. And he correctly called beta. He correctly called LaserDisc. Wasn't going to work out. He correctly saw that the internet was the way to go. So we developed a whole online presence. And then he was gay and he wanted to start a gay film festival. And we said, sure, we missed, we had closed the theaters. We said, sure, let's do that. And then 
out of that, the University of Pennsylvania approached us and said, hey, would you take over what was then known as the Philadelphia Festival of World Cinema? We renamed it the Philadelphia Film Festival, and it's still running. We ran it for 10 years. It's a huge success. Very proud of what they've done there. And But he just kept having this vision of where we where we needed to go, aligned us as a team behind him, and then we went. So strategic planning, anticipating the future are really critical aspects, I think, to anything, right? In my five pillars of leadership, it's a critical aspect, looking ahead and understanding where you need to go in anticipation. As Covey says, begin with the end in mind. I mean, it's really such an extraordinary story, Claire, as I, you know, this morning was reading about Netflix because they're about to report their earnings and you lived through that huge industry shift of how we consume entertainment, how we consume filmed entertainment and that whole lifespan, as you described, of 33 years was such a big shift. Well, you know, one of the brilliant things was because we were doing the Gay Film Festival, we saw so many gay films that weren't being picked up for distribution. So we started a film distribution line because in those days, you know, now you can see gay characters on TV all the time. Will and Grace was really kind of, you know, ground setting for that. But this was before that. And so we had movies that gay people wanted to see that they couldn't find anywhere. So we started a film distribution line. And then Blockbuster and Hollywood became our clients. We sold to them. And then Netflix and Amazon streaming and and Netflix online became our clients. So we were able to take this new technology for quite a while and use it to our advantage. Until streaming. Streaming was really where we couldn't keep up. That that was, although the gentleman that bought our company still has a Roku channel. TLA Video exists on Roku. I was talking to a one of the my former employees who still works for him. And, and when we met last summer, the number one film on the channel was about two gay men in their 60s reliving the highlights of their youth and big seller for them. So He's doing it on a, you know, on a smaller basis, but, but we were able to really ride the wave for quite a while, just changing each technology. It's important now you got to understand, you know, I'm constantly watching marketing and figuring out personally, I just learned Kajabi, which is an online course system because I'm going to be launching a leadership training course. And so, okay, time to learn a new technology. So I've learned Kajabi and you just have to stay current. You have to stay current. You you bring up the question I'm about to ask. So first of all, when was the end of the 33 years? Like how long ago was that, that you had to yourself personally start to pivot? Let me just say that my partner in the last couple of years was not a happy person. And I was the brunt of a lot of his unhappiness. So I became very discontent and I happened to find a law of attraction coach that I started to work with. When was that? So 2012, we were valued at zero as a company. And I won't go into the reasons why, but we were valued at zero. And then I started working with her in 2013. And I I wrote this letter to myself dated 12-31-13, in which I imagined and believed in a 
a change that included abundance and new ways of living and freedom. And that was in April of 2013. And in August, a call came in from one of our associates who said, I want to buy the company. And everybody laughed. And I called them back and I said, let's make this happen. So in January 2014, we sold for millions, despite the fact that we had been valued for zero. And to me, this is my number one law of attraction story that what we think about, we bring about what we visualize, we materialize. You have to have a very practical approach. You can't just sit back and wish for this to happen. I actively worked alongside Derek to make this sale happen. But it was my, I'm very clear that it was my intention that played a huge role in this outcome because it was truly a miracle, truly a miracle. So that was in 2014 that the company sold. So a decade ago. Yep. I'm seeing him for the first time in 10 years tomorrow night. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So then how did that evolve to where you are today? What were the decisions that played into? It was a, it's been a long and winding road. I'll be honest. I found business coaching in 2015. I became a John Maxwell leadership certified leadership coach. I did HR for a bit because I saw that business owners knew that they had a problem with their employees, but they didn't always see that the problem was them. (laughs) I love that. So, So I've done a bunch of different things over the years. And really, over the last year, including I took a job for much of 2022 into 23, because I really missed that team. I missed that collaboration. I missed having a home. I'm an entrepreneur, but I'm also a team player. And I took that job for a year until I realized I really needed to go back to my roots. I I really love working with business owners. I love being their strategic partner, their thinking partner, their accountability coach, their cheerleader, their and in many cases helping them promote and and bring on their management team to create a stronger company. So it was a very tough decision. I was eventually sucked in. So, you know, it went from a day a week to two days a week to three days a week to four days a week working with them to making the decision to go back out on my own. So since then, I really focused on working with business owners and doing leadership training. And I have never been more excited about what I'm doing. That's a big statement. I I wake up inspired and passionate every day. And because I believe in, you know, I can honestly say all my clients are making more money. I can honestly say that the people that I coach in leadership improve their leadership skills. And, and I'm passionate about helping people become better leaders, which starts with you. The hardest person to lead is yourself. So I really believe that you have to start looking at whether you're leading yourself or you're leading a team of people, you really need to look at who you're being in life. And this is where the the cat and dog dichotomy with my family is really very stark because I'm constantly examining, I'm constantly looking at how I can grow. And as my sister said to me many times, stop analyzing so much. And I don't understand anything you're talking about. So I love learning and I love growing. That's why I was I was listening to your podcast. I was also looking at your, I forget what you call it, your guide to money, your free gift that you give to people. Yeah. The money blocks, unblock I, your money blocks. I love that. 
so much of what you uh, what you address there are things that I think are really critical and that we overlap taking care of yourself. I think one thing when you lead yourself is self-compassion is so critical, right? If you ask yourself, would I say what I'm saying to myself, to my best friend? And if the answer is no, <laughs> then you need to change the conversation. You know, I, I, I have... I'm not very systematic, but in terms of how I think I'm systematic. So I have my seven steps to determine your destiny. And the number one thing is your mindset. You have to understand where your mind is and how you approach things. And I, I really think the the more positive you approach things, the better off you are. And so I love that, that you know, and taking care of yourself is part of that. Like you, you deserve I have a friend who this is she talks about it all the time Lauren Weinberg is what you know you are worthy what do you deserve and a lot of times people don't think they deserve to take care of themselves so i love that in there and then replacing the blocks is critical what we tell ourselves is so important and i i love how you bring that up and you give the option of this is what i have said to myself this is a new conversation that i can say and I've led a workshop called Live by Design, Not by Default. And this is, you know, the underlying premise. I actually have a a limiting belief worksheet that I offer to people, you know, what's your limiting belief and what can you replace it with? And one of the critical elements when you replace a limiting belief is that it has to be something you believe. If you reach too far, your brain will not believe it. So if you say, I'm going to make a million dollars, your brain says, ha ha. But if you pick something that's within reason, you know, I want to make wherever you are, right? I want to make 80,000. I want to make 120,000. I I intend to, the words are important. I intend to make 200,000. If you can, it's a, if it's a stretch, but you still believe it, then you're much more likely to live into that new belief. So I love that you say that. And then the whole taking action, critical, critical. I'm rolling out a new talk now called Empowering Leadership, Transforming Your Personal and Professional Life. And the three elements of it are is a commitment to personal growth and self-awareness, because you have to know who you are. And the second of it is build purposeful, intentional relationships, because that's where your outside perspective and your support in time of trouble. And then the third thing is take meaningful action in the direction of your goals. And so many great ideas get lost in the shower. So I, I hope that people really download that very wonderful free gift that you give people. Thanks, Clara. So, so many things come up when you just spoke. First of all, when you were telling the story about your sister saying, stop analyzing, I was going to ask exactly what you ended up saying, which is, you know, as a mindfulness practitioner, it's so easy to sit and watch oneself and fall into self-judgment. And if you don't bring the kindness and the self-compassion, then, you know, we're just constantly naming and listing our faults. And as you said, that's not helpful. I'm also curious as I really wrestle with the fact that I'm a pretty driven person, right? A type A personality. And as I've aged, I wrestle and contend with this voice that says, Laura, you can't control outcomes. You can't control everything. Take a deep breath and perhaps surrender. 
a bit. And so I'm wondering, Claire, where is, how does that interaction work for you between taking action and surrendering to the mystery and recognizing that it's not all up to you? I love that question. I think there's an element of intuition involved. And I was just on a call this morning with a woman that practices intuition. We were asking her what her marketing technique was, and she said intuition. And she really is. I think that step two of my determine your destiny is knowing your core values. So if you know what your core values are, so mine is, one of my number one is to be of value, be of service. So that surrender, right? Like sometimes I think to be of service looks like this. And sometimes to be of service looks like this. And it's it's very difficult to be committed to how you're being in the moment without necessarily being attached to the outcome. And I think that's where the surrender comes in that, well, I also believe that there is no failure. There are only lessons for learning. Out of every adversity come the seeds of opportunity. And the problem is we fight against the adversity and we neglect to look for the opportunity. I think that's another area where the surrender comes in. And then one of my favorite quotes, Viktor Frankl, right? Between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our freedom and power to choose our response. And in our response is our growth and our happiness. So I really think that if you look at life, knowing that it's working for you, even when it looks like it's not, and you look for the good in everything, no matter what, then surrender becomes a little bit easier. I don't know if that answered your question. Well, perhaps do you have an example in your life where you faced some form of adversity and you worked with it, at least emotionally, and had it work for you? You know, I wish I could say that I am so wise at this age, but I was recently in a situation where I was being bullied. I'm not used to that. And this person actually said some very mean things that I had to really work on my reaction to in a way that I don't know that I've ever had to in my life. And so I was on, I've created a little mini group of three other coaches. We've been meeting for three years every other week. And we we were talking about that because even though it was a year ago, some of his I can't help myself. Some of those, some of his comments still bubble up. Just like, I don't even know my, I'm, I feel compassion that he would feel that need to say something so mean, but they said, you should really write him a thank you letter because it's had me, it's had me look very deep at what cord did he touch? That's been lying under the surface all these years that I now have this amazing opportunity to confront and, and bring out into the open and heal. And when I look, there's, this was certainly the most extreme case of it, but I've had other people in my life that have said things to me that were not kind and I've let it go. And, And I stood up to him and I said, you know, you can't, it's mean that you're doing this. People notice it. You know, it's, it doesn't make you look good because people like me and they're, you know, and they've said things to me about what you're saying to me and they don't like it. And, you know, thank you for making me confront this. I literally said that to him. (laughs) 
so, you know, life is always full of opportunities to confront an adversity and see where the silver lining is and come out the other side. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I would agree, Claire, that when something really rocks you to the core, especially something someone says or the way someone acts, I do also use it as a raw shock of, are they reflecting something inside you? Like, why are you getting such a strong reaction? It sounds like what you described, maybe anybody would have a strong reaction. But there are certainly relationships that friends of mine, it just rolls off them. But to me, it just, you know, sticks with me. And I almost use it as a mirror. Like, what is it reflecting back at you that you can't even tolerate being in this person's presence? And it's it's quite interesting. I guess I also feel drawn to share because in some ways I, you know, I just love your affect and your vibe. So I pick tarot cards as I start the new year. And I would say that all the cards I've picked reflect the, the concept of working with things that don't go my way. And what can I learn from that? Almost to the point where I felt like I want to put all these cards back. And then I'm like, you know, but they're giving you the same message, which is you're entering 2024. And how do you want to make lemonade from from what I perceive as lemons, perhaps? And that's exactly what, what you've been talking about. So as we come towards the end of our conversation, I'm I'm curious, please, you know, tell, you know, tell our listeners about the coaching practice you've you're delivering right now and how that's reflecting who you have come to know yourself to be, you know, warts and skills and all. I love coaching. I have both a very practical approach right? Like you have to have goals and you have to have measurements and you have to have techniques for hitting those goals. And we look at everything from the marketing to the people, to the the competition revenues, you know, you have to look at the complete package. And then there's also the mindset element of things. Although many of the business owners that I work with, I call them unconscious manifestors. They're already very successful, but they've done it not knowing and not acknowledging that power that they have to manifest. So I have a client that two years ago, he told me his vision. They they do home remodeling. And he told me his vision of the location that he wanted to create. And it looked impossible. And I said, you know what? You are an incredible manifester. You are going to manifest this. And in December, they bought the building next door. So they had spent a lot of money in the building that they're in. So they're going to be able to take advantage of the building that they're in now. The building next door is perfect. They're going to be able to create that vision that he had two years ago. And so, but how we got there was, what does the zoning board say? What does the architect say? You know, what is the team looking to get out of this building? So there's both a, a mindset and a very practical approach that I take. And the other thing is leadership training. because. So many times you want to promote somebody because they have a skill or a talent, but that does not mean that they know how to lead people. 10% of the population is a natural born leader. Now, whether they're good leaders or not is, you know, is questionable. 10% of the population will never be a good leader. 
and I, I promoted somebody at one point. I said, you know, if you, he didn't, he was very iffy about it. I said, we're going to promote you to leading the team. If it works great. And if it doesn't, we're going to undo this with no recrimination. He hated it. So we undid it. He was in that 10%. He'll never be a natural leader. But, and you know, that you have 80% of that group in the middle that can learn techniques and approaches that will help them connect to their people better, that will help them. A lot of times people get promoted over others and there's this resentment. How do you navigate that? You have a challenge. You've got a conflict on the team. How do you navigate that? And there are definitely tools that you can use and, and skills that you can acquire that help you become better leaders. And I am passionate about helping people achieve more effective leadership because it makes such a, people leave companies, they leave leaders, they don't leave the companies, you know, my daughter works for somebody right now who probably won't listen to this, but if she does, you know, yells at her team in front of customers and it's so wrong yells at the team, you know, praise. I, I think I was listening to one of your people that said praise in, in public and criticize in private. So basic, but it's not something everybody knows. I had led this leadership cohort two years ago. I developed the, my leadership training with an army special ops ranger. I was very blessed to have him help me design the material. In the first cohort, we had a business owner in there. And I said, why do you want to be in here? And he said, because I know I need emotional intelligence. I know my emotional intelligence is at a low. My wife will confirm that. <laughs> and, and he had an instance where he had an employee come in who was crying. And he and he just walked away from her. Like he didn't really didn't. This is baby cat. He really didn't know how to handle it. And he said, I want to know how to handle a situation like that. So we talked about it and he came up with techniques for how to handle that in the future. It's not rocket science. And I think people don't understand how easy it is to become some, so much more of an effective leader and business owners. A lot of people get into business because they have a skill or a talent, but that doesn't mean they know how to run a business. So using my experience of starting running and selling an award-winning, we won lots of awards that business for millions of dollars in the face of, you know, being valued at zero. I learned a few things along the way that I love to pass along, but I would say my biggest thing that I've had to learn is how to listen, ask questions and listen. When I first started coaching, I realized I was not a good listener. So going to Covey's The Eighth Rule, I I created a talk called Listening for Better Relationships, which I gave quite a few times. So every time I gave it, I was reminding myself how to listen more. And I just asked one of the my leadership trainees for a testimonial. And the most heartwarming thing in it that she said was that I asked her great questions that had her see the answers for herself. Because a lot of times, you know the answer, but you don't ask yourself the right question. And then other times I bring my experience. So it's a combination of bringing my experience and helping you figure it out for yourself. So, so true, Claire. I mean, a couple of things come up for me. My previous career was working at hedge funds on Wall Street, and which is really historically, somebody is a good money manager. So they raise one, more money and more money. And at some point they need employees to help them. And by and large, they're terrible leaders. They have no idea how to lead. They just hire people and 
don't know how to give feedback and don't know how to interact. And I, I think the biggest skill set is to know when that is a deficit and to reach out to someone like you and ask for help. And another thing, when I started my financial planning practice, I would go to conferences where other people were taking, you know, sessions, portfolio management. And I felt like that background I have, I want to learn how to listen better. I want to learn how to leave little bit of uncomfortable silence, which I can't say I'm 100% at, but to give someone to really develop an answer and then to ask reflective questions and not to feel like my role is to constantly be fixing and advising. Because as you said, so much is just being a guide to help someone come up with the answers that are already inside them, but to give them space to explore and to think. And that's a skill that I continue to work on developing. Well, I think you're an excellent podcaster. You know, I listen to quite a few podcasters and I, I the questions that you ask are insightful and lead to very in-depth answers. So I would say that's a skill that you've taken and excelled at. Oh, thank you very much. So to to ask my last question, which is, you've had a long and varied professional career, which continues. How over this time, Claire, has your definition of success shifted? I think my definition of success is really, are you living your purpose? Do you feel fulfilled? And I, I really think that it boils down to, we all have our own definitions of success. So for me, I'm successful because I really feel like I'm living into what I was called here to do. And I'm blessed that I've been given the opportunity and I I seem to have a skill set that provides people with value that gives them positive outcomes. So, you know, for my sister, my sister's success, one sister, it's, you know, she retired early and they sit around and they watch TV and they have a very easy, comfortable life, and that's success to her. And I, I'm thrilled that she's happy. That's where she's living into what she wants. So I think you have to define success on your own. But for me, it's it when you're living into your dream existence, that's success. Wow, that is a powerful statement to say that you feel like you're living into your dream existence. I would change some things. I mean, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) But in many ways, you know, I wake up with a smile and I'm energized and I love the people that I get to hang out with. And and I, I love my clients. And so, yeah, I'm living very much the life I want to live. I would make some tweaks, but, you know, nothing's perfect. Nothing is perfect when we're incarnated into these human bodies. So we get to navigate our moments of transcendence and our moments when crap happens. Exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Claire. Really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Claire Brown Kohler of We Empower Leaders. Some of my takeaways. Number one, 
Know the value of strategic relationships. One of Claire's core principles is intentional relationships. She shared that she was introduced to the man who would later become her business partner by an usher at a movie theater who recognized her after she saw the film Harold and Maude twice. This introduction led to a 33-year relationship that culminated in the successful sale of the company to a strategic partner. My second takeaway is to recognize the power of working with a team. Claire still has tremendous admiration for the team she worked with for 33 years, noting that it was devoid of politics, it was supportive and collaborative. Quoting the entrepreneurial operating system, Claire shared that she, as the chief operating officer, was the integrator, while the CEO was the visionary. In other words, everyone on a team has a unique role to play in the organization. My third takeaway, anticipate the future. Claire's previous business evolved from a a repertory cinema company to catalog and online sales, retail stores, film festivals, and film distribution. The industry underwent a tremendous amount of technological change during this time. In her current coaching practice, Claire considers strategic planning to be a critical aspect of running a business and encourages her clients to stay current on shifts in their industry and to begin with the end in mind. And finally, we bring about what we visualize. Claire worked with a law of attraction coach in 2013 and attributes the successful sale of her former business in 2014 to her belief that abundance was possible. Coupled, of course, with the hard work that she and the CEO put in to make the sale happen. And Claire shared the story of how she helps others she works with achieve their visions. Are you enjoying this podcast? Please don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss next week's episode. And a rating and a review is so important to help other people just like you to find this podcast. And I'd greatly appreciate it if you're enjoying the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Making Change With Your Money. Certified financial planner, Laura Rotter specializes in helping people just like you organize, clarify, and invest their money in order to support a life of purpose and meaning. Go to www.trueabundanceadvisors.com forward slash workbook for a free resource to help you on your journey. Disclaimer, please remember that the information shared by this podcast does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or financial advice. It's for information purposes only. You should seek appropriate professional advice for your specific information.